This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another live broadcast of Cascade of History. We're coming to you live from the historic grounds of Magnuson Park in Seattle, Washington, along the shores of Lake Washington. This is the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, a historic spot where aviation had its pretty much its, uh, maybe its birth pangs, but certainly many of its big uh, leaps forward back 100 years ago. This is a very hallowed spot here in Pacific Northwest history. Perfect place. We're in the old Master at Arms quarters, right near the old gatehouse. This is the perfect place to broadcast about the old Oregon country and talk about history. I'm Felix Bunnell. I'm the host and producer. We're here every Sunday night, as we have been now for more than a year, on the old uh, Space 101.1 FM, the only live radio history, history radio show about the Pacific Northwest uh, here on Space 101.1. Um, we've got a great show for you tonight. Um, we've got some Northwest Christmas music we're going to play. Um, we did... If you tuned in last week, we did the Stan Borson versus Yogi Jorgensen showdown, and that was that that took up most of the show. Um, we've got some other artists we'll get to tonight. Uh, we'll also have the second installment in that 1951 recording of Their Name Was Courage. This is the episode called Blackie of Natchez Valley. We're about four minutes into it. And uh, let's see, I don't know, do you remember the how the last installment ended? For the past two weeks now, you've had trouble with some boy on this train every day. Yes, sir. Well, we'll get to, we'll figure out what all that trouble was about with some boy on this train for poor little Blackie of Natchez Valley. As you recall, it's a heartwarming tale of a boy and his ox. Um, let's see, our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, is going to be joining us for another of Seattle's historic holiday light displays. Um, I'll let you guess which one it is. Last year this time, we did a live broadcast um, from the Burgermaster over here at uh, University Village, and we had the organizers of Candy Cane Lane, which is just a stone's throw here uh, from the station. But uh, Ken is out there in the weather, and it's pretty mellow tonight compared to last week. Um, and he'll be joining us for another of Seattle's historic holiday displays. Um, we're also going to talk to Phil Edlund from Save Parkland School. That's a group down in Pierce County that's been working on a grassroots campaign to raise money and preserve essentially the, the downtown core of the, of the community of Parkland in uh, Pierce County. Um, but before that, our, joining us first from Vancouver, B.C., is reporter John Mackey of the Vancouver Sun. Let's see if I can get him on the phone right now. I pressed those buttons there. I pressed that button there, and then I pressed that button. And John, are you there? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I, I know I get kind of transparent. I started talking about all the buttons I have to press to get the phone connected, but it's, it's always it's, it's a learning curve every week. So um, <laughs> I'm so glad you're able to join us on the show tonight. I think last year we talked around this time about uh, neon signs in Vancouver, which I, I love neon, and there's so much great neon history in Vancouver. And someone in uh, Cascade of History land posted a link to your story about the SS Beaver, one of the most famous vessels in you know the Pacific Northwest, the Lower Mainland, whatever, whatever side of the border you're on. And you have this terrific angle on it, which involves my favorite bookstore in Vancouver, McLeod's, which has that... Nice musty smell. <laughs> that I, that there's the a sp- last bookstore, really. Yeah, no, there's 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 a there was a bookstore here in Seattle called Shorey's that was around. I don't know since the early part of the 20th century, and I used to go to it. It closed down maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but I went there as a kid back in the 70s and just had this just. It's just a if you if you know what I mean if you know you know as the kids say that smell of a musty old bookstore. It's sort of. Uh, makes your heart kind of race because you know like i mean you're going to find stuff in this bookstore that you like and last time i was at, at mcleod's which has been about five years ago honestly i i left there with a stack you know from my waist to my chin like holding my chin on it so it wouldn't i wouldn't spill the big stack of books i had to haul back to seattle on the amtrak so um you know, you've been well, it's a very dangerous place to go into mcleod's no right? kidding that's and, a good way to put it because you you can't go in there without spending money because you'll just <laughs> see this incredible stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yeah, and it's it's stuff you'll see if you you'll never see it ever again. You'll see some. I saw I found one book about the the 
uh, Fraser River that showed the tramway they used to have where they would load one car yeah, at a yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course I bought yeah. it because I've never seen that yeah. book since, before or since, and it's, it's on my yeah. shelf now. Um, yeah. So how long have you been writing about uh, B.C. history, Northwest history for the Vancouver Sun? Well, I've been working for the Sun uh, uh, since 1984, which is kind of embarrassing. I used to I started <laughs> off as a music writer, and then but I, uh, when I got gonged, I, I started writing about history Probably, probably in the early 90s. Right? Okay. But, it, 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 you know, Vancouver's got a, and Seattle, the whole Pacific Northwest has an incredible history. They're, they're always changing. So, so it's, it's tons of fun. Yeah. And I think you and I first talked when I was working for the Museum of History and Industry. I think we, yeah, we crossed paths yeah, somewhere yeah, like 20 yeah. years ago, maybe even more. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, the ingredients, you know, if I was putting a recipe together for your story, it has uh, maritime history, it has a musty old bookstore. It has some artifacts. You you actually, if I read correctly, you actually purchased these some things at McLeod's that, that yeah, played into your store. Yeah, I paid more money for these things than I've ever paid. I'm from Winnipeg originally. <laughs> we never pay retail, right? That's in that middle of the country. Did, a lot of people from Seattle know Winnipeg for some reason. Did anyway, you? But they, uh, but the, the, did anyway, you expense yeah, it? Were you able to expense it? To the can you put it on your tab? No, 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 no. Okay. I was actually went in looking for. I'd done a story a week before about um, the hundred and. Uh, somebody had found a 1923, uh, November 14th, 1923 photo of a ballroom, uh, which is now a place called uh, the Leicester Court, which is now uh, called Celebrities, which is Vancouver's, uh, you know, one of Vancouver's most happening uh, nightclubs, right? Neat. Gay bar. Okay. But it, anyway, so they, and so I did a story on that. But in the 60s, it was the Retinal Circus, which was the psychedelic place here for two nice. years. Nice. Right? So that's where the Grateful Dead played, and that's where the Doors played, right? Very and cool. uh, so, and, and you know, and so I actually had gone in. So I did this story, and then and I realized, oh, Don had some old Retinal Circus postcards <laughs> when I was last in there, and I I forgot <laughs> to go in because they were quite collectible. There's like 33 of them, and I have like 14 or something. <laughs> so I figured I, I go downtown, and 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 I'm Don's place. If nobody's ever been in there, it's it's just stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of books. It's just fantastic. You yeah. never know what you're going to find. Not, right? yeah, it's not just the shelves. There's a place like that in Pullman where Washington State University has a, a store called Bruised Books and there's just stack. It's like a hoarder's house but in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the hilarious thing is Dawn, you know, somebody used to work for them figures Dawn might have a million books. Right? <laughs> he, he, like, who knows? That he, he might be 700,000. But there's a lot of books. Yeah. Right? That, that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, his whole basement is filled with books. And anyway, so, so anyway, there's a stack of stuff. And I'd been in the Vancouver Archives a few months before uh, in the back rooms of the Vancouver Archives, which is really amazing. Nice. And, uh, and they have the, all these artifacts in the back of the archives. And one of them was this incredible photo of the beaver, um, <clears throat> which ran aground in Stanley Park uh, and the, off of the rocks on Prospect Point in July 26, 1888, and sank on, uh, I think it was June the 12th, uh, 1892, when another ship passed in the wake, uh, took it off the rock. Anyway, so so everybody would go on to the, um, all these Vancouverites would go have picnics there and stuff. Because after, after it ran aground, it was visible for many years, and it was sort of a, like a landmark, yeah, years, right? Yeah, yeah and, and it, it, so there's all these photos of it. That's right, so on cool. The, on the rocks. Yeah. And it's well, got this crazy history where it's the first steamship that the Hudson's Bay Company, they brought it here and put it together, and it went back and forth between Puget Sound and Victoria and all up around the place, right? Yeah, it, it's so old. It built in 19, 1835. I have to be wow. careful about that. Wow. It, it sailed around Cape Horn at this, uh, and it came up to Astoria, which was then, well, it wasn't even Oregon Territory in 1836. That's right. right. And then they had Fort Vancouver, which was a little further in. And then in you know and then in 1843, I guess they they realized that the U.S. was going to probably take over the Pacific Northwest up to B.C. So <laughs> what became B.C. So they actually moved their main trading post to Fort Victoria, which is now Victoria, in 1843. And and, and so and then it and it just went up and down the coast, right? It was it was it was yeah it was basically. Uh, I was at one point. It was a man of war. I, I'm not sure if it was involved in the pig war or not. <laughs> you mean you couldn't have a vessel with more history in the Northwest oh, than the Beaver? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely the most historic building. Anyway, so so what they did was um, all these people uh, took stuff off the Beaver as artifact, as, as souvenirs. And I, in the back of the Vancouver archives, I saw this old framed 
picture of the beaver with the rope from the beaver as the um, as the uh, uh, as the frame, and it just it's one of those things where you just go like, Ugh. if you're into history, you just go like, oh my god, right? <laughs> and I think, and, and you know, I thought it I thought at the time was a one off, right? That there couldn't be too many of those. So I go into Don's place, and he had two of them, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they had obviously, they were in pretty rough shape. They needed to be cleaned up, whatever. But, you know, and the, the rope is kind of freighting. But you'll never see another thing like that in your life. I don't have ever seen it once before. Wow. So I know there's at least four copies left. But um, And uh, so, so I bought them, you know. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, they're, 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 they're just incredible. I mean, the wood is... I mean the, the 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 rope is so old that it 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 looks like it's wood and, wow. uh, and, and but it's fraying so which only adds to its kind of uh, uh, patina I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah what, you've been watching a lot of what antiques roadshow or old old car shows so wait yeah. so, so so does it date to that time between when the beaver ran aground and when it sank is when those souvenirs were being pulled off there and these frames were put together I'm guessing that it, I found the story thanks to the, thanks to the wonders of newspapers.com which is the greatest thing ever if we're writing history stuff kind of expensive right. i have to pay i pay for my subscription out of pocket and it's it's like i pay like 180 bucks a year for that or something but it is worth yeah, it yeah yeah exactly yeah. but but if you're writing stories uh, uh you, you know i use it every week that's I true yeah history call yeah and because uh, because it is sadly i don't think it has the seattle times on it i only think it is it, but in vancouver they have the world which was the uh, one of the early newspapers that actually is the best of the early newspapers. Okay. And they have the News Advertiser, which is the, the earliest uh, thing. And then they have this, the Sun and the Province and the uh, News uh, Herald. So, so they have all these old newspapers. You can find all the old stories in there. Okay. So the, and, and anyway, I found an 1890 story. Uh, they write these stories, which were ads, saying, if you want to get this, you know, really great souvenir of the beaver. Go <laughs> go to the manor, and there it is. Like, and they described this thing, and I go, like, "Oh my God, it's from 1890, right?" And if you looked at it, you go, "Yeah, that is from 1890," because it's just it just has a great patina, you know. And so, I mean, describe. Yeah. Tell me how big it is, what it looks like, what the pictures of, what it well, says. That's a very good question. I should have bought my thing. I don't know. It's like a, you know, it's just a, a regular picture size, probably like you know, 24 inches by 18 or something. Yeah. And the photo itself is, uh, you know, one of those, uh, like a cabinet card photo size, right? And yeah. then somebody has actually written, you know, in, in incredible writing, handwritten this beaver, you know, beaver first steamship to, um, you know, the, the pioneer steamer now lying on the rocks wow. in the narrows, Broad Inlet, B.C. You know, because they didn't call it Vancouver, right? They called it Broad Inlet. Cool. The first to ply the uh, Pacific waters, sailed from the Thames and rounded the Horn in 1835. Right? It, it, it's amazing, and the, the 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 photo of it on the rocks is sharp, right? Because those really old photos, because you know when they took them with the uh, glass plate negative. Yeah, huge they, format, they, they, tons of mercury, oh, uh, tons of uh, whatever it is. I don't know what the chemical is. It's on the thing. Is it? Uh, I forget what is. Uh, silver, yeah, I, silver, I, I, some sure. sort of silver yeah. depositive stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. the album of Prince or whatever. They're, they're just, they're just, and it hasn't faded at all. Probably because it looks like it was in somebody's basement for 100 years. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did, did, did McLeod say where they came by it or how they got it? He or? doesn't know. He bought it years ago, and he actually <laughs> had it in storage, and he's actually moving some stuff around, and he had it right there. And I, because I would have probably looked at it, except for I'd seen one of these before, right? Yeah. And I was like, like and my heart stopped, and I'm going, oh, my God. God, you know, now, there's a few things you, 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 <laughs> that I've seen in my, in my years working for the side. There's there's a maquette of the lions from the Lionsgate Bridge. Oh, cool. Uh, that's on the in on the on the penthouse of the Marine Building. Neat. You know, there's two of those, and Neat. there's you know there's there's a, Vancouver's uh, uh, um, you know got uh, an Art Deco City Hall, and they made these Art Deco uh, club chairs for the councilors, the original councilors. And so there's a couple of those around, right? But, but uh, you, you just don't see them, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I can't imagine there's ten of these things left. Yeah. You know? And um, are the are the two you bought identical? Uh no, no. One one's uh, well, the the frames are identical, but the other one is about uh, 1870 Victoria, and it's another photo. Gotcha. And it's also got a, a 1890 Vancouver World article uh, on the back. 
huh. that uh, it's kind of in bad shape. But then there's another article, which I couldn't find the date for, on the front, which explains what it is, right? That's so, so cool. yeah, so it, 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 it's, it's just it's incredible. I mean, they, they, they do have them in the museums here, so I won't. Maybe I'll leave them to them when I kick the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I mean, as for Vancouver memorabilia, it doesn't get any better, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 that's pretty cool. I, you know, speaking of Vancouver area memorabilia, I, I did a story for the other radio station for Cairo about the, the big hockey stick over in Duncan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the best thing at Expo. That yeah. and, they, that and the, uh, the, uh, they, they had uh, uh, these hot dog stands that were made up like spaceships. They were pretty cool, too. And I remember that's the, was good. that was yeah. the first time I had Boston pizza was at Expo 86. <laughs> I also remember going on the, uh, going on the roller coaster. We ha- I had like a bag with me and I couldn't take it on the roller coaster and I just left it on the platform and it was there when I finished my ride. It, it felt very Canadian. Like no one stole my bag while I went on the roller coaster. You know, Expo was such a bloody success, you know, uh, that I actually had, because I was a music writer for The Sun at the time, so I used to, I literally was at Expo almost every day, right? That's oh, summer. wow. That's cool. And I realized, you know, in probably the August, whatever, uh, I had never actually gone around the site, uh-huh. because I actually <laughs> just went straight to the gig, right? They had the Expo Theater, and they had another place called 86th Street. And so I said, oh, let's walk around the site. And it was so crowded that day. I said, oh, I can, I, I'll, I'll come back another time. And I never went back, so I never actually walked around the site of Expo. Even there, I was there every bloody day. Yeah. It, it, it was really cool. And I'm, I'm not old enough to have been to the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. And we talk about the fair here in Seattle being this amazing pivot point where they're sort of before the fair and after the fair. Seattle's on the world map. Seattle's sort of getting organized and figuring out how to be a, a big city and getting, you know, major league sports teams, all that stuff. Is, yeah. Expo, well, is, 80, that, is Expo 86 as consequential for Vancouver, B.C., as Expo of, as the 1962 World's Fair was for Seattle? I think, I, I think people would argue that the 62 World's Fair in Seattle is probably more positive. I think that uh, there's a real deep... Uh, I mean, pro- Vancouver um, it became an international city because at, at that point because of uh, the, uh, the provincial government um, sold off the old Expo lands to a uh, Hong Kong-based company, and and you know, and that became the. Uh, there's been a lot of international investment in Vancouver, which uh, uh, is very controversial, and uh, the housing prices here have gone insane. And, right? Like I'm sitting in a house that I paid 110 k for in 1990, and now it's probably worth 1.5 million. Right? Yeah, like, it's, it's just uh, which isn't that much U.S. Of but uh, but uh, but yeah it, yeah yeah so it, it it absolutely people do have real fond mem- memories of Expo but it's more mixed right whereas I think the Seattle World's Fair there's a lot left from there the, the Seattle Center to me is great right yeah like the Space Needle I I'd argue is like the last great thing ever built you know what of them <laughs> yeah I, I know what you mean yeah <laughs> yeah no it's the best yeah it's the best you know I've even eaten at the revolving restaurant. You know, yeah, and uh, you know, it's it just it's fantastic. You know, the food it wasn't that great, but it's it's an amazing view of Seattle and the Key Arena and stuff like that. You know, it, it, it's it's great. Now, you have know. you been back? You know, Key Arena they they converted it to now to Climate Pledge Arena, and they totally redid it and they dug it deeper and they kept the original roof trusses, but totally rebuilt pretty much the entire rest of the building. It's you know to to be home to the Kraken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. So I went to my first concert there about a week ago. I saw the 1975, and it's just. It was a transformation of that building. I've been in there many times over the years. I think the first concert I saw there, oh, 40 years ago, I think I saw the Grateful Dead there in like 1981 or something. <laughs> with my, with my, I had a brother-in-law. I had a brother-in-law who was really into the Grateful Dead. So as a, a 12-year-old, I went to like three or four Grateful Dead concerts. I went to Bobby and the Midnights. I went to Jerry Garcia Band. I went to all these sort of uh, Robert Hunter, but all these bizarre kind of Grateful Dead-related projects back in the early 80s and stuff. But uh, anyway, Seattle Center still is, is pretty amazing. They are still kind of... Uh, Living yeah, off the World's the Fair, the, like the, the, the success that World's Fair did translate into a successful civic campus, and it just it totally transformed the attitude of the city. But then you guys went on to have the Olympics, too. So you won up Seattle by having the Olympics. Well, you know, the funny thing about the Olympics is it was, it was the only time, and you, you in Seattle would understand this, it's the only time in the history of the city that it didn't rain in February. <laughs> 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 and, and so everybody flashed all around the world, right? And, and my friend uh, Dave Tom, whose uh, punk rock name is Bud Luxford, 
his joke was we invited the world and the world didn't go go home <laughs> and and, uh, and and the olympics was it was yeah it was a you know this other guy bob Rennie says we handed out our uh he was a, a realtor he, uh he said we handed out our business cards to the world. And Vancouver's a beautiful city. Seattle's yeah. a beautiful city. Portland's a beautiful city, right? Yeah. And and Vancouver is, uh, uh, um, yeah. It was the Olympics was, you know, I, I didn't go to any of the events, but I covered a lot of the uh, cultural things. I, I went around. I, I ripped off from the Seattle Times. I think it might have been PI. They had this idea, uh, this thing called Tourist of the Week. Uh-huh. So I just took that and I just went around and interviewed tourists, and it was fantastic. Right? It was the, the Olympics were a gas. I mean, I would have never, in a million, hundred million years, realized how much fun that could be. And but it was, yeah, they, they they took over the city, and it was tons of concerts, tons of stuff for that. It was it was it was great. I, I would, you know, you know, it's too expensive to to. Uh, you know, uh, to, to throw, but, uh, you know, so I don't know if I'd vote for him to come back, but yeah. that say it was a great party. Right? Yeah, I'm envious because we had a, you know, we had an Olympic bid in the late 1990s. Our city council pulled the plug on. We were trying to get the, uh, whatever year the Olympics were in London, was that 2012, the Summer Olympics? We were going for those, but then they pulled the plug in yep. back 1998 or 99, I think. And that's, a, you know, it's, it's, we struggle like a lot of West Coast cities with crime and you know homelessness and all the sort of post-pandemic yeah. Uh, yeah. retail closures and that sort of thing. And I sort of I kind of chomp at the bit for us to do something positive, to plan something big like the World's Fair or like the Olympics or something that's not just you know addressing problems, but that's leaping, making the leap yeah. to the next big thing. Because that's what that's what makes history. You know, when you build the infrastructure for some big event, then the infrastructure is cool because it's, you know, like like the Coliseum at Seattle Center or I guess Climate Pledge Arena now, it's, yeah. what, 61 years old and it's been reinvented and it's still really cool. So, uh, Oh, uh, absolutely. We, we got uh, uh, um, we got a, 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 a SkyTrain in from the from the uh, from the airport to downtown, which was oh, instantly yeah. full. You know, yeah. there, there were a lot of positive things that came out of the Olympics. The, the, but by the way, one of the great, great Great uh, Vancouver piece of the memorabilia I ever seen. My my late great friend Norman Young, who uh, who was just had the best stories. But he was a, a, a thrift store kind of guy, right? He uh-huh. would go in. He was a uh, I think he was head of the theater department at UBC. But and and he <laughs> he'd go to thrift stores. And he found one. It was a 1932 Berlin Olympics. Uh, it was a 32 Berlin. 36. No, no, 36. It was, it was 28. It was 28. Oh, 28. Okay. Uh, it was 28, and and and, and it was in Amsterdam, and okay. it was uh, and it was uh, Percy Williams was this guy from he was the a national became a national hero. He was some guy from East Vancouver, which is you know the the uh, uh, rougher part of Vancouver. That's where I live, <laughs> and uh, and he could just run fast, right? He, and, and so so some guy spots him just running somewhere, and he goes, "Hey, you can run fast," and he's a he's a track and field coach, right? And so they put Percy Williams into the BC track and field meet, whatever the championships, and he wins, right? Uh-huh. And he's just some guy from East Van. Nobody knows he is. So they sent him on the train to Toronto. I think his dad, his, I can't remember what his coach was named. The train works on the train. Uh, the coach works on the train in order to be there with him. He wins in Toronto. And the Olympics are like four days later or something in Amsterdam. <laughs> So he gets on a steamer and he goes across the Atlantic, and the the coach can't come with him because he got no, he hasn't any money. And so, uh, so Percy Williams goes in there, it's a hundred yard dash or maybe the hundred meter dash, and he wins. <laughs> he 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 becomes the world champion, right? Wow. Which for Canada would have been a really big deal, right? Yeah, no kidding. I, I, he might have been the first gold medal guy from Canada. Other than in hockey, and anyway, and they didn't know they didn't know what Canada Canada's national anthem was, so they played the Maple Leaf Forever, which is this other thing. And then he went to two hundred <laughs> meters the next day. It was it was just some guy who could run fast on these men. Wow. So, uh, that, so that, that, that's the, anyway. So so Norman was in a uh, uh, in a thrift store, finds this poster, and it's uh, auto, it's a it's a poster autographed to his coach from Percy Williams. Wow. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, it was quite something. I love thrift store like stuff that. like that. That's that's very oh, cool. Yeah, well, that, well that, is, that is the best one, right? That's yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, John, I really appreciate you making time on a Sunday night to talk about, you know, three of some of my most favorite things. Vancouver, the SS Beaver. Uh, let's see. Musty Bold Bookstores, uh, Thrift Stores. We got, some, we got some Expo 86 stuff in there. We covered a lot of ground, as always. And I'd love to have you back sometime soon. Not wait a whole other year to have you back the next time, but that's okay. Maybe sometime in January we can pick another Vancouver topic. Because this big hockey stick in Duncan, they're trying to get rid of it. I'm trying to convince people what? down here. I haven't heard of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really? just, Justin McElroy did a story on CBC on Thursday, so I posted Justin it. Justin McElroy is... Is the absolute best. He really is. I, he's got so many yeah. followers, and the, he finds these great ways to kind of uh, work in history and town slogans and flags and all, all the stuff that I love. So oh, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah. So the two, uh, the he, two he works for the CBC. So he's on Twitter for all your your maybe your your listeners know, but Justin McElroy is just the best. Yeah. He's got a great sense of humor. I've never actually met Justin. You know. I've only but, talked to him on the uh, phone. Yeah. He. Um, yeah. I just talked to him on the phone. Yeah. So that, that world's largest hockey stick, the, the town of Duncan, the recreation district there, they don't want to pay the million dollars or, or more it would take to restore it because I guess a woodpecker pecked it up and the wood is, is rotting. And they, they held some kind of an Internet poll and 70% of the people said, you know, get rid of it. And so they're trying to get rid of it. And it sounds just insane to me. It sounds crazy. No, no, uh, no. The world's biggest hockey stick was, is, the, is the greatest thing ever. That's the symbol of Canada, right? Canada, there's a great book called Canada's Gigantic. Uh, ah. by uh, Henri Robodeau, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. And he, it, all these small towns all across the Canada, the number one, have all these giant mascots, like Husky the Muskie in uh, Kenora, Ontario, and stuff like that, right? There's a, a giant Easter egg in, uh, uh, Ukrainian Easter egg, in, in Vegreville, Alberta. You know, they, 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 That's great. They, 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 and the, the giant hockey stick is one of them, right? It's just... Yeah, uh, it's, it's probably, I don't know, what, about 40 feet high or something. The, it, the it, hockey stick is 220 feet long. And wh- weighs 60,000 pounds. I mean, I know it doesn't mean anything to you as a Canadian. You need me to speak in meters and kilos, but I, I can't remember no, what the I Canadian figures are. I'm too old. I, I, never, I never use any of that stuff. I have no idea you know, what, uh, what 40, 40 whatever of centimeters of snow is. I listen anyway. sometimes to the BBC London, and they, they give the temperature in Celsius and in Fahrenheit because they have so many, like, 80-year-old people listening to the talk radio all night. You know, Because when I listen in, in Seattle, it's the middle of the night in London, and they always give the temperature, I can tell, in Fahrenheit because they know that old people are listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John Wolf, I don't talk to you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and let's have oh, yeah. you back on the show in January sometime, okay? Okay, see you, see you soon. Talk Bye-bye. You soon, Good night. Bye-bye. Okay, okay bye. John Mackey, the Vancouver Sun, and obviously a kindred spirit when it comes to Northwest history and all stuff like that. So, okay, um, and we did, I did put a link on the Cascade of History Facebook page to his story about the f- frames he found and the picture of the SS Beaver and that wonderful Vancouver landmark that now lives on in that, uh, in that piece of memorabilia he picked up at my favorite store, McLeod's in Vancouver. Great, great, great place. I need to get back there. I haven't, I haven't been to Canada since before the pandemic. I really need to get my act together. All right, let's hear some Northwest Christmas music. Let's go to the uh, 1966 album by the Brothers Four, the uh, folk band, uh, singers from the University of Washington who made it big there, put out a bunch of record albums. I got to talk to Dick Foley. Oh, it's been 20 years since I talked to him about this album. But this was his favorite song on the album, Mary's Boy Child by the Brothers Four. child Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day. Hark now, hear the angels sing, a new king born today. And man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. While shepherds watched their flock by night, they saw a bright new shining star, and heard a choir from heaven sing, the music came from afar. Oh, 
colors of Christmas Day. Trumpets sound and angels sing. Listen what they say. That man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Now Joseph and his wife Mary came to Bethlehem that night. They found no place to bear she child, not a single room was inside. By and by they found a little nook in a stable all forlorn. And in a manger Great, great classic song there from the Brothers Four here on Space 101.1 FM. We're live in the studio as we are every Sunday night between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time when it's Standard Time or Daylight Time when it's Daylight Time. I'm Felix Bennell. I'm the host of Cascade of History. We try to jump all around the old Oregon country. That's Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia talking about history and Cool old stuff, cool old things, uh, sentimental things, sometimes nostalgic things, but also serious history stuff, too. Um, also talk about a lot of historic preservation. And coming up uh, later, before the top of the hour, will be uh, Phil Edlund will be joining us to talk about the Parkland School down in Pierce County and their efforts to save that building and restore it as a kind of a community center for Parkland, which lacks... Uh, it has recreational facilities, but they want something right in the, in the heart of uh, downtown Parkland. Um, and in just a few moments, we're going to have Ken Zick join us, our roving correspondent. He's out at one of Seattle's fabulous, uh, historic, wintertime, Christmastime, holiday, uh, decorated neighborhoods. But before we do that, I, I don't want to get away and, and end up skipping an episode of uh, Blackie of Natchez Valley. Because, you know, I, we, we make our promises on the show. We want to deliver them. So this is segment two, uh, installment two of Blackie of Natchez Valley here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. They were throwing rocks at Blackie. They say Blackie's dumb. He isn't dumb, he's smart. He puts up his front hoof to shake hands with me, just like a dog. He loves me just like a dog or horse would. I'm not going to let them throw rocks at Blackie. You... When I was elected captain of this train, the men gave me complete authority, just like the captain of a ship. You know why, don't you? I know we have to get over the mountains before it snows or we'll all die. But that doesn't have anything to do with them throwing rocks at Blackie. Our people are tired out and hungry, Hugh. All our tempers are short. Have you ever thought that men could start a fight with your father over their boys, just as you do over Blackie? They haven't because they know they'll be banished from the train. Are you going to do that to me? No, no, Hugh. No, but if there's any more of this trouble, I'll have to take Blackie away from you. There isn't a man in the train who wouldn't be glad to trade one of his oxen for Blackie. You uh, understand now, Hugh? Yes, sir. All right, now run along. I want to talk to your father. They won't either take Blackie away from me. I'll run away with him first. So that's what Captain Longmire was talking so long to you about. He wants to take Blackie from Hugh, does he? No, Mother. You can just tell Mr. Longmire that I'll have something to say about how our son is punished. He's my son as well as yours, Bob Kearney. The captain is spreading word through the train that any boy throwing rocks at Blackie will be given a public whipping. 
Oh, there'll be no more trouble over Blackie. Take care of you, Bob. He's only 12 years old, even if he does do a man's work on this terrible trip. This constant trouble between the boys is because they're so tired. None of them is bad. Our own tempers are not too good. No, don't worry, Mother. Several days later, as the train was slowly moving along, Abby made her way up to her favorite place beside Hugh. Get up, you oxen! Come on, Blackie, pull! I wouldn't hurt Blackie, Hugh. I love Blackie, too. Can I walk beside you? Going out to Oregon with bruises on my knees. Not rest enough or food enough. And the Indians all have fleas. <laughs> oh, that isn't the way the song goes. Look, Hugh, a baby rabbit under that little pine. See him? Get him for me, Hugh. Oh, please. Here, you guide Blackie. I'll get it. Hurry, Hugh. Hurry. <gasps> Hugh, look at Blackie. He's fallen down. Oxen down. Oxen down. Oxen down. Hugh, Hugh, where's that fool boy? It's my fault, Mr. Kearney. Up, up, Blackie. Up, Blackie. Now, let's see that leg. Yeah, here. So it's Blackie, eh? Leg broken, Kearney? And might as well be. Pull tendon. Hugh wasn't watching. Wagon hit that big rock. Blackie. Oh, Blackie. Boy, is that a cliffhanger or what? Uh, poor Blackie, oxen down, oxen down. That's going to be our new secret uh, greeting. If you see other members of the Cascade of History Club, just holler out, whether across the, uh, across the grounds at Seattle Center or if you're uh, in downtown Portland or somewhere in Boise or somewhere up in Vancouver, just say oxen down, and they'll know that you're a listener of the Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM and streaming everywhere at space101fm.org. All right, well, our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, is off on the winter night looking for history and holiday history, and let's see if we can get him on the phone right now. Are you there, Ken? Oxen down, oxen down. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is the secret greeting. That was a really, That's probably the best cliffhanger I've ever randomly pulled for that show because I usually I go to the old audio file, I pull about four minutes so I have time you know, to, to develop the story or whatever so, so people can get into it, and I, sometimes I don't even listen to what, where I picked, and that was like a natural-born natural cliffhanger right there, so... Hopefully no one's too upset about Blackie. I don't know how the story ends. I learned the same time the audience learns the, uh, the denouement of these stories from uh, uh, Their Name Was Courage from 1951. So, all right, so now I've just been teasing all evening. I've been telling people that you're out at one of Seattle's historic neighborhoods that puts on holiday light displays. So where actually do we find you tonight on this uh, December 10th, 2023? So I'm, I'm out at the site. Um, originally it was a golf course that built back in 1924, 25, somewhere mid-20s and later became a residential area of post-World War II, uh, Olympic Manor, what? So up in up North Seattle off 85th. What a great spot. Really easy to get to, yeah. If you're just coming from either direction, get off I-5 at 85th there and just head west until it, you almost get to uh, Golden Gardens, and there it is off on the right-hand side there. And, you know, I, I did a little bit of research, too, and I didn't know it was an old golf course. And I, I also read that in the early 50s, the Army tried to take seven acres of the property through some kind of eminent domain to put an anti-aircraft, <laughs> some sort of, like, <laughs> Cold War. I don't think it was Nike missile base. There was, and I think they eventually got kicked out, or they didn't, the Army didn't put in there. And then the um, the school got built, like that uh, Whitman Middle School, and there's a North yep. uh, North Beach Elementary, I think. And somewhere in that in that middle school, uh, or somewhere in that complex at the park there, the athletic field, there's some building left over from the National Guard that was converted into a picnic shelter. And I, I got to go check that out in the daylight sometime. Nice. Anyway, getting nice. getting yeah. way getting way ahead of myself. So, uh, uh, Olympic Manor. I, I think the first time I went there was in the early '90s. How how's it look tonight? How many how many what percent of the houses are decorated? Do you think? So I'd, I'd say probably probably sixty seventy percent are lit up. That's pretty good. Um, and and mercifully, like I've been here a little closer to the holiday when it's you know literally bumper to bumper traffic <laughs> and, the, and the streets are full of walking folks. And on a Sunday early in the season, it's not it's not nearly as uh, as crowded as it as it is otherwise. And the when I was driving over here, I think it was just starting to rain a little bit. Is it dry right now? Or is it raining right now? Yeah, there's a little bit of a sprinkle, but the, the weather the weather's great, and the the um, the neighborhood and the folks in the neighborhood really go all out. There's a bunch of we see a bunch of great displays, really cool thematic stuff. 
Um, there, uh, saw a great uh, Millie Kalikimakis Hawaiian theme uh, set up. Saw a nice Rankin Bass uh, representation <laughs> with a bunch of <laughs> with the uh, you know Rudolph and uh, and uh, 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 my mind's blank. Who's the dentist? The elephant wants to be a dentist. Oh, uh, Herbie, Herbie. Herbie yeah, he wants to be a dentist. Was there was there a Sam the Snowman the or the, I was gonna say Orson Welles yeah. character, <laughs> not Orson yeah, Welles. No, no, no. Burl, Burl Ives, Burl Ives, and Orson Welles. That was a weird. That was a strange uh, uh, like aphasia for me there. Sorry about that. Um, so so there is a Sam the Snowman. There's a, there's a Sam the Snowman and That's there's great. the uh, abominable snow creature hanging out there up on the deck looking down on them all. That's great. And every you know people remember of course that uh, Orson Welles. <laughs> No. Burl Ives has a Northwest yes. connection because he, he spent his his golden years up in uh, Anacortes, and they have the yes. they have, he used to decorate his front yard with all these creatures and things from based on the Rudolph characters, and they now have them at the museum in Anacortes. We've talked to the director Brett Lunsford there before about that. They bring those out, and you can take selfies with them this time of year. So there's this terrific Northwest history connection there with uh, Burl Ives and Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. So um, one thing I remember, I remember going there 30 years ago and the car I was driving at the time was so old, you could easily turn the headlights off to just have parking lights. And I think sure. the last time I went there, I, my car's newer now. I can't remember. I, was, I feel like I wasn't able to actually turn the headlights off all the way because of like, so the headlights are automatic or the settings aren't as simplistic as they were when there was just that one little knob you could pull out to two different settings. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep, remember Cause, that. Because that's really key. Those drive-through parks is turning the, your headlights off. Yeah, although although I will say, like it's it, it's right now like, we'll have a car to cruise by us, but it's definitely worth it for some of the for some of the houses. You know, it's it's only like three streets, maybe five blocks along each street to go out for a winter stroll and see some of the some of the displays up close is actually is actually well worth getting out of your car and uh, moving around a little bit. I don't think I've ever done that. I think I've only, I think I've ever even set foot out of the car. I've only just driven through. That would be Are there a lot of other pedestrians doing that? You see that tonight or Not that, not tonight so much. Like okay. I said, it's a Sunday it's a Sunday night, but yeah. I definitely in years past I, I try to come up here at least once or twice every season. Yeah. And, and as you get closer to the closer to the holiday, it is really a uh, has sort of a very neighborhoody party atmosphere. Kind of, it kind of feels like uh, like Halloween or like Fourth of July when people are out in the, out in the street. You know, knowing now that it's an old golf course, as you look around the terrain or the topography, is any of that? Does it look like an old golf course anymore? I can't I can't really recall what my memories of the place because I haven't been there for a year. But anything that looks yeah. golf course ish still to you? So so it definitely it definitely like the neighborhood was clear cut you can tell because there's none of the you know the old growth hundred foot trees out here yeah um, and and the architecture all looks very consistent so it was all built like I said in the, in the mid fifties yeah um, so the one thing one thing about it uh, we were driving around listening to uh, listening to Christmas music on the radio we heard of Bing Crosby and one of the articles I read uh, suggested that this course was built for um, uh, more advanced players, and hmm. was reportedly one of Bing Crosby's favorite courses. Interesting, unverified course. You know, I was looking at those clippings. It's, it seemed like the golf course was still in operation in the summer of 1953, but by by this time of year, they were already selling lots um, for that for what became the development there. I think three different companies were selling lots, and and you're right about the timing. It's like you couldn't pick any place in the city that so has such a concentration of mid-century modern houses. I know there's at least one, I saw a newspaper advertisement like a, a you know, in the classifieds from like 1955 or something of a, a Paul Hayden Kirk house. You know, he, de- he designed the, um, all that when they renovated all the old buildings that were that be, at the place that became Seattle Center, he designed the really ultra modern kind of brick cladding of those old buildings, like the arena that they tore down a couple of years ago or McCaw Hall that they renovated about 15 years ago. But so there's some there's some serious architecture in there too, and that had never really crossed my mind before. But the timing of that all makes sense. Um, yeah. And I was trying to figure out the first year they had a light display there, and at the earliest I could find any reference was 1959. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I couldn't find any information, but I, I mean I remember whatever 20, 30 years ago coming out here for Christmas lights. So. Um, it, it's been it's been around for a while. It's definitely been a tradition. I love their main entrance where they've got that kind of that brick pylon, and there's oftentimes there's like a rotating element to it up high when there's yeah. like a Santa Claus or something that turns around. Now, were you able to get photos that you can share on the Cascade of History Facebook page for people who don't know at all what we're talking about? Yeah, okay. yeah, most most certainly. I got the you. You are exactly right. That whole um, 
the whole median strip there is all lit up for the holidays. I got pictures of that, and it's got a rotating set of Santa Clauses. Oh, great! Um, and, it's, and it's beautiful, beautiful light up wreath there, and it says you know Olympic Manor. It looks looks really good. I wonder if listeners to the Cascade of History think, "Wow, those guys go on and on about those Christmas lights." <laughs> it's like because it's you know I mean it's 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 a lot of electricity and some light bulbs, maybe some LEDs and stuff, and some tinsel and you know some inflatable thing. I mean, I I just what I really love about these places is the fact that the neighbors have to coordinate and get together and have this sense of community around this annual thing they do, for which they get no pay. They have to pay more in their electricity bill. They have to deal with yep. people like you driving through on a <laughs> on a Sunday night, you know, looking in their front yards and stuff. But that, I mean, all kidding aside, I love that sense of community and history that these these displays that stretch back now in this one at least 64 years, if not more. And like the yep. you know, candy cane lane over there in Ravenna goes back to the late 40s. Anyway, I, I really do love this stuff. And if anyone, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you can forward and fast forward this. But this really, <laughs> I mean, this is the part of history that I really love, that the people doing stuff voluntarily to make their neighborhood and their community stronger. That's the stuff that I just... I could do. I could talk about that stuff all night. So, anyway, I, um, go ahead. I, I will say. I will say that um, one of the parts that I really like. We talked about Candy King Lane, or uh, you, you start for Candy King Lane last year, and it's been you know as new families move in, like they pick up the tradition and become part of the community. Yep. And um, and I've got a I've got a coworker who lives up in this neighborhood who uh, just moved in here a few years ago, and he last year he was totally he was totally into it about like oh you know i've got my lights up but you know i gotta buy more because i gotta keep up with the rest of the neighborhood and so and so he really found it was a great way for him and his family to get involved in the community yeah and that that the way the tradition carries forward i i did a story about candy cane lane for the other radio station for cairo a week ago i think or 10 days ago and i spent an evening before candy cane lane and before they'd fired the lights up and everything talking to a couple of the neighbors who aren't necessarily in charge but they're sort of the more active neighbors in the group and there's no, like, there's no instruction manual. There's no, you know, there used to be some three-ring binder that had all the notes from the community organization. But the thing just carries forward every year. It's almost like oral tradition. Like, it's like a before before there was a written word, this tradition of this, this little neighborhood in Ravenna just carries forward. And the thing's essentially the same every year. It, and it, it morphs very gradually, but the same basic premise is in place, you know, more than about 75 years later, which is, I just love that. I love that stuff just carries forward. I, I envy people who live in a neighborhood like that, though it can be, you know, a couple of weeks every year where you've got people, you know, out in front of your house and lights and stuff. I could see where that could get, sometimes could get kind of tedious, but still that sense of community is very cool. So I think we're, we're lucky. And I think Seattle has perfect weather for Christmas lights, the cold and the, the damp reflecting off the leaves and the grass and stuff give kind of an extra punch to the, to the lights. Yeah, the, the neighborhood feels really festive tonight. Yeah, yeah. All right, Ken. Well, thanks for being our roving correspondent. Thanks for making your way out there to Olympic Manor. I know, I, I think most of these places uh, they're they're on from like dusk until around eleven o'clock. I haven't checked on specifics about their hours. I don't know if you were able to come up with anything on that, but it, I, you wouldn't want to go there after eleven o'clock anyway. But yeah, it's just right, definitely a very cool thing to do with your family this time of year. I, I would agree. All right. Now, if we do a, if we do an episode next week, I'm not sure. I'd love to do a, a pre-Christmas episode next week. Maybe <laughs> we'll find you at some other exotic location around the Pacific Northwest to bring us some other cool local Northwest history. I'm, I'm game. All right. Look forward to seeing your pictures there on the Cascade of History uh, Facebook page. Thanks a lot, Ken. All right. Thanks, good. Take Merry care, Christmas. Good. Bye. Our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, out at Olympic Manor, which is in North Seattle, uh, you go to go up 15th or on I-5 and then just go west on 85th Street, uh, right through the heart of uh, upper, uh, what is that area called? That's <laughs> well, if you're going to Golden Gardens, right? Olympic Manor on the way to Golden Gardens at uh, west of 15th at north on northwest 85th Street in North Seattle. All right, uh, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be speaking with Phil Edland from the Parkland group that's working to save the old elementary school down there. And before we do that, we're going to hear a little bit more Christmas music. This is a song by the Wailers on that terrific Etiquette Records Christmas album. It's a song called She's Coming Home. I really wish some contemporary artists would cover this song. I'd love to hear a modern interpretation. Here's the Wailers with She's Coming Home on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. There's a Christmas time is finally here, oh can you see? 
Northwest band, The Whalers, on the Etiquette Christmas record from 1965 with She's Coming Home. I th- I, I love the drums on that song. I love that, just that rat a tat a tat and the breaks there. Uh, okay, well, let's see if we can get Phil Edlund on the line here. Phil, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Felix. Terrific. Thanks for making time to join us on Cascade of History tonight uh, with an update on the Parkland School. Been uh, wonderful for you guys to join us every couple months or so and give us uh, the latest on what's going on. So, I understand there's some sort of a fundraising deadline on the horizon or some opportunity for people to support? Yeah. So our first deadline was November 3rd to either have the $2.85 million raised or at least um, half of that amount, $1.425 million committed. And while we did not hit that, we raised enough to be able to show that we could make the earnest money deposit, which we did on November 1st of $25,000. Right on. And we also received the allocation from the state capital budget of 500000 Whoa. And then we all... I'm going to clap. Yay, that's yeah. re- that's really great. Congratulations. Nice work. You bet. And so in order to access that 500000 from the state, we have to show that we have secured all the funding necessary to complete the purchase of it. And so uh, we ended up contacting all of our elected officials from our Pierce County Council representatives, our state representatives, and our state senator. We encourage them to write letters of support to Pacific Lutheran University and indicate that they would help us pursue local community project funds from the state legislature in the upcoming short session and the next session. And as a result, POU gave us an amended purchase and sales agreement that gives us two different opportunities. One is that they've extended it till April 1st for us to raise at least $515,000. And after we do that, then they will provide an interest-free two-year promissory note for the remaining balance, allowing us to purchase the building. Wow. And uh, it is an additional incentive 
if we can deposit $500,000 by February 1st, which that's a little over, a little less than two months away, <laughs> they will contribute $350,000, effectively lowering the purchase price so that yeah. we're not having to repay as much on that non-interest bearing two-year loan. Wow. And so the idea is that that will give us time to hear about other grants that we have out there um, as far as applications that have been submitted, as well as obtaining additional funding from the next state capital budget and the next biennium. That's great. Um, the biggest thing we need now is we need community members to show their support. And right now we've had at least 65 people who have stepped up to help us raise the funds that we do have, the funds that we've used to do our due diligence and to be able to make the earnest money deposit. But any funder, not just PLU, but any foundation that we apply to, they want to see that the community is behind this effort. And while we're not a wealthy community, it's important that everyone participate at some level. Yeah. So the community has 40,000 people in it. Half of those are probably minors. So if you figure there's 20,000 adults, if half of those gave the equivalent of two Starbucks coffees a week for the next five weeks, we would have it. Yeah. And so what's the best way if people hearing this live broadcast tonight or listening to the podcast or reading about this on the Cascade of History Facebook page, what's the best way? Where do people go if they want to support you guys online? They need to go to www.faveparklandschool.org. And there's a donate page that says how to donate. They can go ahead and make an electronic donation using their credit card or checking or savings account. And there's also an address there if they prefer to mail a check when it's not to the P.O. box, but we need to actually have cash donations of any size to help get us there. The important thing is getting more people involved in donating so that Makes not sense. just other foundations, but larger donors want to see that this is something that the community is actually behind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really, I really admire what you guys are doing. I love, I love, I've been, I love old schools, old schools and historic preservation and community you know, building a community that's all tied together hand in hand. So what you guys are doing is is ideal. It's like a dream project, and I appreciate all the hard work you guys have done. I'll put all this information on the Cascade of History Facebook page, and let's keep in touch. Let's you and I talk in early January, maybe have you back on the show and help, help spread the word in the first part of the new year because stuff gets kind of caught up in the holiday season as everybody's busy with all kinds of crazy stuff. But um, For sure, and yeah. we are a tax-exempt charity, so your donation is fully tax-deductible to the extent allowed by law. All right, Phil Edlin with Save Parkland School. Thank you for joining us tonight on Cascade of History, and we'll good luck with the project and keep in touch and keep us posted, okay? Will do. Thank right. you, Phil. Good, good night, Phil. Good night. What a terrific project. Seriously, uh, I'll put the link on the Cascade of History Facebook page. It's it's just these guys are doing really cool stuff. This is this is what historic preservation is all about, in my mind, when it's kind of like we were talking about with Christmas lights a moment ago, just people voluntarily spending their time to do something from which they're not going to really see any fiscal benefit, but they're just going to have the satisfaction that they've made the place where they live better. And that's just like, boy, if everybody did that, it would be a, it would be a terrific world. So, all right, well, we're coming to the end of another voyage here of the big uh, Cascade of History annual, or <laughs> annual weekly live broadcast here on Sunday nights on Space 101.1 FM. It, it <laughs> I like the idea of an annual show. Um, we will. I my plans are to do a live show next Sunday night too, because it is the Christmas season, and there's so much great, uh, so much great Christmas time audio culture to share. I want to get another episode of uh, Blackie of Natchez Valley in the <laughs> shared with you guys before the end of the year. And I won't be doing a live show on Christmas Eve. I'll tell you that right now. We'll probably play replay last year's Christmas special, or maybe I'll put together a new one for this year. I don't know. Uh, I want to thank our guest John Mackey from the Vancouver Sun and his terrific story about. The treasures he found at McLeod's books and the SS Beaver and that wonderful, wonderful landmark on the rocks there in Vancouver 130 years ago. A roving correspondent, Ken Zick, out at Olympic Manor tonight talking about Christmas lights and community history. And I, again, had no idea that was an old golf course. And I want to thank Phil Edlin, too, uh, who just joined us from uh, the Save Our Parkland School group. Um, if you like the station, you can support us by going to Space 101.1 FM. Um, there is a place there where you can donate. We are all volunteers, uh, but we do have to pay for the electricity and that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's a good way to show that you support the station that is punching far above its weight with all kinds of cool programming all throughout the week. Lots of great shows, including Cascade of History live on Sunday nights here with me, Felix Bunnell on Space 101.1 FM. Good night, everybody.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. Ooh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.